see that crash of Silicon Valley Bank as a possible turning point in the history of tech industry. There's this tech bubble going on since the dot-com burst back in the 2000s. And we've been living these massive multiple cash burn kind of thing because you've got a tech label on your forehead. I don't think that makes sense anymore. Tech is everywhere. And I think that's a turning point. And I believe we get back to the basics of you put a dollar on one side, you got to make more than one dollar on the other side. And that's business. Welcome to the J Curve, a podcast about tech ecosystem builders in Latin America with me, Olga Maslikova. My goal with the J Curve is to make the stories of LATAM founders and funders accessible for global community. Every other week, I interview spectacular entrepreneurs and investors who share their most valuable lessons of building, growing, and funding some of the most successful tech companies in Latin America. My guest today is Cassio Bobsing. Endeavor entrepreneur and the founder and CEO at Zenvia. Zenvia is Latin America's leading customer experience communication platform and the first LATAM-based SaaS company to IPO on NASDAQ. Cassio is also the founder of WOW Accelerator, the largest independent startup accelerator in Brazil. We hope to make in-person recordings our new normal, so please do check our new YouTube channel. I'll add the links to the show notes. And send me your feedback via direct message on Instagram at Olga Masliko with KH. Now off to the show. Casio, it's a pleasure to have you as my guest. Welcome to the Jaker. Thank you. My pleasure. I would love to start with a little bit on you and talk about your entrepreneurial journey and your background, because I think your story is the ultimate representation of American dream, but it's not something that you can think about when you think about tech entrepreneurship in Brazil, which is typically people who come from, you know, wealthy backgrounds with great education in Stanford, Harvard, you name it. You have a very different story and you build a company in a very different region from Sao Paulo or Rio de Janeiro. So I want you to share whatever you feel comfortable sharing about your origins and your path to growing Zenvia into a publicly traded business and the most known tech company from Porto Alegre and Rio Grande do Sul. Yeah, uh, sure. Started pretty young. Actually, my first company well, founded was, I was 18. I was in the beginning of computer science course that I did. And as I come from a low middle class family, we didn't have any money. So we started just with an idea and lots of, uh, effort and to try to make things happen. But actually I failed in the first company and I tried again in the second one and it started to get a bit of traction. We we're trying to do websites in the beginning of internet here in Brazil. And we did a couple, but doing services is pretty complex because uh, it don't scale easily. So it failed in the second try and we tried a third startup when I was 20 and it failed again. So at the fourth attempt, Zenvia was born and was born without any money. We actually, me and my partner, when we founded, we had two chairs and two computers and that's all. And we began by selling to a couple of customers and developing uh, with the money that they paid us. And we went from there. 
I want to get back to this one, two, three, consistently consequential failures. Why did you decide to persist and try again instead of giving up on being an entrepreneur? And It's simple. I'm stubborn. <laughs> and as I was studying computer science, I learned and understood that technology is a means to an end. So I started by really believing that I could transform the way things worked by employing what I've been learning in, in school and by programming. Although I was not a fast programmer, I was never like a very tech guy, like pure tech guy. I was mostly trying to sell and to build a product and serve customers, do marketing. So I liked everything about being a founder of a startup. I liked the complexity of being a generalist, focusing on the problem, on the problem that I was trying to solve for customers. So what made you think that support over text message, over SMS, was an interesting problem to solve from the product and from the business perspective back when Zenvia was started? It didn't start like that because we intended in the beginning to help companies to understand their customer bases, create micro segments by data mining their databases and connecting different data sources to understand who are the best customers and what are the best ways to reach them on marketing campaigns. And then we would use SMS as a direct way to target these customers. But it was very complex for customers that didn't understand everything that we were proposing. They just got the idea that we could send a message. So we dropped the whole complexity and we focused on the messaging. It's like the cherry on top, we removed the cake and we picked just the cherry and tried to scale that. And by scaling that, we were able to build a software platform, which I personally coded the major part of with the help of my brother. He was teaching me how to code the Java. Family business. <laughs> yeah, he was like my mentor and supervisor. We built the platform. And then we started scaling it. And it was the beginning of Google AdWords. And we jumped with everything that we had to become the best provider of SMS using Google as a channel for customer attraction. And that's why we were able to come from Port Alegre and to become the leader on the market. Because everybody was in Sao Paulo and Rio. And we couldn't make meetings. Like it was very expensive to go to Sao Paulo for a meeting. We couldn't afford so we did the best we could on internet and on the phone, on email, and trying to make everything happen digitally. Am I right to say that Zenvi is a bootstrapped business and you only raised a little bit of capital somewhere at the growth stage already to cash out early employees, some of the uh, yeah, founders? Exactly. Why did you make this decision to use revenue and profits as the major growth? engine of the company? As I had no money and I didn't know anybody with money and I didn't know any investors, there was not like a VC industry in Brazil back in the, these days. So the only way I knew was to sell and make a profit. So it was by necessity. Yeah, I didn't have any other choice but be profitable. So that's why we built whole like the first 18 years of the business profitably. We did some M&A and recaps to acquire 
uh, shareholders that came from these operations. We did one in 2014. And then we brought investors to help us to do that recap. But we also used that. I like to say that I used the whole financial mechanisms to make that uh, happen in a way that I didn't have to be diluted. Actually, on 2012, I had 23% of the company. And when we IPO'd in 2021, I had almost the same percentage after the IPO. That's very different from a venture capital-backed company scheme in the post-IPO market. And when you reflect on this years, you mentioned 18 years, it's almost two decades of bootstrap and Zenvia. What are your key learnings out of that experience that are applicable for founders, especially in the current market environment, that a lot of them have to bootstrap because there's no way to raise? I would say there are some key learnings from the business side and from the personal side. From the business side, you can bring money and burn that money by trying to scale faster than you can really manage, but it creates a lot of uh, waste on the way. At the end of the day, building your, an organization is building a, a system that operates efficiently because over time, the one who survives are the ones that are more efficient. I mean, the long lasting companies are the ones that are more efficient and tech is not different. You can really grow at a hundred percent for over five years sustainably. Are you really improving the machine at the same rate or are you just trying to feel growth in having like a false perspective of the real organizational evolution? Even though, of course, the scale is good and green brings power and capacity to do different things. But balancing that equation of a strong base of growth with the machine that you are always moving and it works from end to end. And that's something quite rare in VC field to make that kind of mindset be side by side with a strong growth. And from the personal side, being a founder is something very different from being an executive because a founder is a dreamer and a uh, strong worker with quick decision-making. These are skills that are very important in the early days of a company over time. Things change and change a lot. And in tech, I would say, usually you have these economic cycles, economic cycles of seven years. I would say in tech is around two to three years that everything changes. And as an executive, you become necessarily incompetent over the course of three years because the business change and you find yourself as a founder in a position that you must be aware that you became incompetent and you have to really struggle and adapt and be flexible and make a really effort to understand what are your weaknesses so we can really work towards becoming capable of doing the next three years. And that's something that is very challenging personal. So I want to build on that. Very few founders are relevant for the journey of the company from day zero to day one and beyond. In most cases, once the company hits public market or once it raises several rounds of growth capital, the founder becomes irrelevant and they're being changed. In your case, you've started the company and you're running the company. You brought it public. You run it now. What was your approach 
towards building this awareness and designing the strategy of consistent learning and consistent personal growth. I look at myself in a very critique way, but also in a humble way to understand where I'm not doing well. So I can surround myself with people that are better. Generally, I believe they're better than me. And the things that I need as a CEO to really be better over time, these things changes. I try to stretch myself. I look at reality, at the business, at the operation, at the relationships, at the processes, what I'm missing. And I try to figure out what am I doing that I could do differently or better. It's not trying to find some magic answer for some two by two matrix from HBS that would solve my problems. Usually the devil is in the details. So when you look at the real stuff, you're doing the outputs of your work with a mindset of to be open, to be humble, then you're able to stretch yourself. Otherwise, I don't think that would work over a long period of time. So if we look at the, your journey from day zero until post-IPO today, if you segment the stages of your leadership, what were the key skills and capabilities that were required initially as you hit product market fit, then as you see an early growth, then you see the stage of maturation of the company. And right now, as you run this pretty mature organization of 18-year-olds. There's this first thing as a founder of a small team that in a way you try to control everything. Because every founder, I can't say every, but in my experience, the majority of founders, they really believe they are good. Otherwise, they wouldn't risk themselves trying to become founders. They really think they're good. They're fucking good. I mean, I'm good and I know what I'm doing. And at some point, maybe you are, but then things become more complex. At some point, you are not anymore. But how do you figure out when you're not that good anymore? At what point you become the bottleneck of the whole system? Because it's a system. An organization, a company, a startup, it's a system. It's a living system. In your piece, you can influence the system. You can like architecture the system, but you're not the system. You're just a piece. You can't become the bottleneck. So how you figure out that? That's a pretty strong thing for a founder in the beginning of the first, I'd say, five to 10 years. And then as you grow, depending on the pace of growth, you move from one product to a moody project company, then you are not a one trick pony and you have to be good at three or four different things. And then it becomes very complex to manage. You're not able to understand anymore all the details. So you got to trust people. So when you are building trust with your team, you begin to understand that your role is not to be the one that executes is the one that leads, that inspires, that influences people. But then as you grow and you go to a path such as having multiple investors or even becoming a public company, then you understand that the way you ran things 
which was more trust-based or inspirational-based, it's not enough anymore. You got to have controls place. You got to manage risk. You got to allocate capital wisely because you're not dealing with your future money. You're dealing with your whole investor's money. And then you change your mindset again, because you have to add a different set of skills, which is how to manage complexity and risk while keeping growth and staying innovative. So that's kind of a 20 year journey in my point of view. When you look at where the company is today, what is the hardest part of your job as a leader? Sometimes you're dealing with lots of abstractions because you can't touch each customer, which piece of the roadmap. I mean, you try to put some up concepts and big numbers and some directives, but at some point it's hard to communicate and engage people with abstractions with big numbers. So there's these capacity to zoom in, to figure out what the fuck is happening there. But afterwards you must zoom out and let people do their job without getting in the way. And I think that duality of being a founder that understands the details and at some point need to go into the details, but then step out and go back to the abstractions and that quickly and wisely so you don't lose people's trust. It's something that is really tough. I love that you touched on both control and trust, and I want to double down on that. You are coming from a low trust environment. We spoke about that before. Here, trust is theirs to gain, not theirs to lose. You don't really trust people by default as a lot of people in the U.S. do. So what was your strategy and maybe mental frameworks about building trust on the organizational level, as well as learning how to give up on control and let other people execute and focus on leadership? That's the big issue, as I mentioned with founders, that they really believe they're good. I mean, let's say there's a goal, something we want to achieve. Possibly there are a thousand ways to achieve that goal. But usually the founder type prefers its own way. And if someone comes with a different way of getting the results and the founder disagree with the way, not with the goal, with the way, before the goal is even achieved, then you can't create trust. Then you gotta learn that, okay, let's agree with the goal and I'll give you the freedom to try, to try your own way of doing that. I'll lend you my trust. So you're going to achieve that the way you prefer. And then you make that happen. That's awesome. And I can get out of your way. And then we are building trust together. I trust you and you trust me. I'm not getting in the way. You're achieving the goal the way you think's the best. And I think that's the, one of the most incredible ways we're able to do that in an organization. And as you let people try things their way to get to the goal that you both agreed on. I mean, failure is uh, evident, right? There happened. So what's your tolerance for failure and how do you discriminate the failures between 
those that you can tolerate and help learn from that and grow as a leadership team and those who are unacceptable and people need to be let go. It's very hard because let's say we agree on a goal and at the end of the period, the goal is not achieved. When we are dealing with complex environments and more dynamic environments such as stock and high growth companies, it's quite normal to not be able to achieve exactly that goal because lots of things are happening at the same time. But you have to also to understand why it was because I couldn't or because it was really tough to achieve. And that's the hard part of making that judgment call. So I think that being open-minded about understanding the dynamics of what happens helps you to improve the management system overall. Sounds that accountability is one of the core principle of corporate culture of Zenvian. It always has to be, because if you're looking into growth with sustainability, like long-term sustainability, you can't fake sales. You can't fake results. You've got to measure in the whole set of numbers if it was efficient and profitable. And, and so, yeah, you, you should be accountable for all the direct and indirect impacts of your choices and your performance. What was your approach towards building the corporate culture? I got to confess that when I began, I came from computer science, I thought it was bullshit. <laughs> culture was bullshit. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was like hug tree kind of thing. And failed miserably in terms of culture, like miserably. The company was about to implode <laughs> in terms of culture after doing a couple of acquisitions. Before we imploded, I, I took my time to learn about that. And I had good advisors and I understood that culture is also something that you must turn into a system of the organization. So then I kind of reset with my team. We were able to reset the culture, focusing in what was the culture we needed for the next couple of years for the company. So we then structured that as a system of how we attract people, how we hire them, develop them, and also fire them, and how we make decisions and how we check if we're making decisions according to these same principles. And over time, we learned, we improved a lot, and then we evolved the company from a single product to a multi-product company, and the culture had to be changed again. But at that time, we understood how to make that into a system. And now it's pretty, I would say, I wouldn't say mature, but it's doing pretty well. How do you go from no culture to a system? My mind works in a very structured way. Until I understood the structure of culture, I thought it was bullshit. When I understood it could be structured, then that opened my mind as, okay, that's a process. Very good. Let's do it. What do you mean by structure? I mean, culture? when you're hiring, we score people on the elements of culture. We try to remove people that won't fit from the process instead of trying to find people that would fit. Because you never know. You only know after you started working with someone, right? But when you are, we are able to notice when someone doesn't fit, that's awesome. And on the onboarding, I do a conversation with everybody that comes in the company. 
And I explained to them that majority of people wouldn't fit in our company. And you're here because we believe you fit. What are the key elements of the culture that you're testing people for in terms of a fit? I would say if you like to keep things the same way, you're going to be crazy in like six months. So you got to love change. As we became a more structured organization and a public, being public traded, we need people that are okay with processes and control and metrics. There's also these elements of people that are really open-minded in terms of diversity. How do you balance this necessity to be a relatively stable, predictable business as a publicly traded company with the necessity to innovate within the company to stay relevant and tailor to your customers? Stop. Because uh, predictability is about the business you already have. You already understand. And you're able to forecast the things you know. So we are always conservative in a way that we forecast the things we know. On the other side, innovation, you can have these long shot bats, but if you really go to the customer and you try to understand the simple things these customers are demanding, it's not that complex to innovate. I mean, sometimes we make it more complex than it really is. That's one aspect. But the other aspect, which is more these long shots, for me, it's about having a really meaningful and strong vision that you can decoup into smaller parts and short-term deliverables. And Looking at Zenvia, when I founded the company 20 years ago, I had a vision that companies would be able to talk to people like the word unique. And we're still in the same vision. It didn't change. And 10 years from now, I believe we're going to be building the same vision because it's very complex. It's not about technology. It's about changing value chains and changing organizational structure and changing the way processes are built within companies. Of course, enabled by tech, but it's not just about tech. How do you escape being or becoming stagnant? How do you continue nurturing this culture of innovation, this culture of experimentation, this culture of treating the feedback of a customer and implementing that in a product development roadmap. How do you technically do it? It's so hard. For me, there's two aspects. Breaking down the vision into deliverables. So really understand what piece of the cathedral you're building. And the other side of the, the other side of the same coin is that it's about the customer. If the customer agrees and makes sense, okay. If it doesn't make sense, just forget it. If everything goes right, what does the future hold for Zenvia 10 years from now in terms of business operations, in terms of markets, in terms of size, scale, whatever else you're planning to measure in the next decade? I don't like to forecast 10-year number. What I, what I want to see happening is that it's actually a change in the way companies structure the whole organizations. Because nowadays, companies are verticals of competences. You have marketing, sales. HR and uh, support. But the customer is the same person that navigates through complexity of processes from these companies. 
and it's annoying and it, there's lots of attrition, it's inefficient. What I want to build and want to see happening is that companies move from structuring themselves into these departments, into customer journeys they design from the customer perspective, and they connect their competences like an API kind of thing into that specific customer journey. So I see customers as flows of a journey being connected through these competences of a company. And that's something very interesting because I think it's inevitable and I want to build that. I want to see that happening. I love your comparison with the cathedral and breaking down the vision and focusing on the customer journey. I want to ask a couple more questions about the topic that probably every single entrepreneur is concerned over today is the market cycle, access to capital, the strategies to scale companies and optimize for the unknown. You have the luxury of seeing the big picture because you are publicly traded. So how do you interpret the current market environment and what are the possible scenarios of development for tech ecosystem or tech markets in the world and in Brazil in the midterm? I see that crash of Silicon Valley Bank as a possible turning point in the history of tech industry. There's this tech bubble going on since the dot-com burst back in the 2000. And we've been living these massive multiple cash burn kind of thing because you've got a tech label on your forehead. When actually, <laughs> I, I don't think that makes sense anymore. Tech is everywhere. And I think that's a turning point. And I believe we get back to the basics of you put a dollar on one side, you got to make more than one dollar on the other side. That's business. What do you think are the consequences of this commoditization of tech? They're ultimately positive, right? You're supposedly be building more sustainable businesses. Am I right yeah. about that? Yeah, although that's not for the interest of everybody because there's a whole industry of monetizing the bubble that at some point is going to be demonetized. I'm a fundamentalist in terms of economic analysis, so I really believe you got to make strong companies and that takes time uh, and that's not easy, but that's why I believe we're going towards. So the whole industry is going to adapt to that. So you mentioned the tech bubble. I think this ability to see things clearer and be focused more on the customer side of the business, the revenue side of the business is probably the byproduct of you being outside of the bubble, right? Of you being here in Porto Alegre and not, for example, in Sao Paulo or Silicon maybe, Valley. Maybe, in being bootstrapped, I mean, you have a PowerPoint, you get a million dollars in the US. Not, not sure if these days anymore, but you get a PowerPoint and you get a million dollars. And then you burn this million dollar and you bring five more, but you improved your PowerPoint. So <laughs> that's insane. When you talk to real companies, they don't believe this shit. I mean, <laughs> They say, what, I mean, well, what the fuck, I'm in the business of like making money. Of course, you got to innovate, you got to, everybody got to do that nowadays. Everybody needs to understand tech and its impact and every industry is being changed because of the tech. But it's not something that is only within that bubble anymore. That's the myth. 
that's been deconstructed. Everybody has stuck. So when you mentor the startups in Wow Accelerator, what are your key pieces of advice to them? You got to make it work and and it's not just bringing new customers. Usually it's quite easy to fool investors with just this part of the equation. Don't fool because otherwise it's going to be diluted over time with a shitty business. Don't fool yourself. Don't fool investors. Make it work. Bring customers, retain them, develop them, make money in the process. And maybe you won't need money from investors. And that's maybe good. If you do really have a plan that you understand you can scale, but it's working, then okay, bring money. But don't be massively diluted. I see founders with like 5% at the company within like four or five years. Doesn't make any sense. In like three or four years, you become an executive with stock options. So try to make things work from the beginning. What's an acceptable rate of growth for startups that are more like profit-driven, revenue-driven? First five to seven years, we grow like 200, 150, 100% a year for like five or six years straight being profitable. We were very efficient. In the beginning, I did everything. I did the contract. I did the website. I did the logo. I developed software. I made sales. I did 24-7 support. I had to learn. I had to do it myself. So why can't you? What was the most counterintuitive thing that you've learned while doing business in Brazil? People prefer technology from other countries, even though it's more expensive. How so? No, 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 the underdog kind of thing. Nowadays, it's changing, but if you'd say it's imported, like it's from the US, people, oh, that's much better, even though it's more expensive. Is it actually better? Most of the time, it's very doubtful because we have the same tech level that we have in the US or China, or it's the same tech. I mean, the basic stacks of technology are the same. We have access to the same kind of, uh, I don't know, cloud-based infrastructure, data, analytics, machine learning. We'll have the same base layers of technology. There's not a single difference. It shouldn't be better just for the sake of. I think we need more Zenvias and we need more local companies that become heroes for the founders and for the customers. I think that's probably the only way or the main way to change this mentality of an underdog. I think that founders, entrepreneurs, they, it's a choice, but I like the idea of trying to build something and not looking for a quick exit. I mean, you can do it, it's all right, but we need entrepreneurs that are more stubborn and can really lead long-term strategies. That's important. That creates lots of value, real, real value. And that creates a sustainable market, I think, for the future, for the country. And in the minds of people who are constantly through crisis, that creates a perception of, okay, entrepreneurship is stable. I can start it. I don't need to worry about how soon I need to exit. This is something that I can do for years. And this is something that can drive the impact in my communities and essentially in my country. Yeah. Otherwise, you're living the exuberant irrational of these bubble days that are going to be burst. And some people are just going to give up being entrepreneurs because they were just living the hype, not trying to build a company. I think my big learning out of this conversation is that you can create your own stability. You can be in charge. You can own your own path. 
and not to be subject by availability of venture capital or changing market environment or changing whatever environment. If you design for the long term and you try to survive with what you have and being creative and being hardworking and learning really, really fast, that's possible. And you are an incredible example of that. And now I want to move to the rapid fire section. I'll ask you five short questions and I'll appreciate yeah. your immediate responses. Let's dive sure. right in. The first question is, what's one book, a piece of content every founder should read and why? Of the founder dilemma, it goes into the core of what we're really trying to build here as a founder. If you could hit rewind and make a decision differently, what's that one decision that you will change? When I thought culture was bullshit. Given the choice of anyone in the world, who would you like to host at a dinner table? I really admire what Bill Gates did because he built a very strong company, the most diversified tech conglomerate in the world. And he, at some point, moved to a different career, which is very interesting and trying to solve big problems of the world. And I would like to have a chat about that with him. Very well. I love it. Bill Gates is a dinner guest. If you were to start a new business today, what would that be? I mean, I really like what I'm doing. I can't figure out another dream that I would be so passionate about. And if I had to start again, I would start from scratch. It would be fun. Would you do exactly the same thing, though? Same problem, but different kind of fun. <laughs> if you were an alcoholic beverage, which beverage would you be and why? I think my preferred cocktail. Vucahe. What is that? It's a cocktail went on the New Orleans, which is like a strong, but well-balanced. And it's bitter and sweet. And it's very interesting and remarkable. So it's all about blending in different competences <laughs> yeah, exactly. in a glass or in one person. Castillo, thank you so much for being with me today. It was an ultimate pleasure. And thank you for being such an incredible role model for entrepreneurs at different parts of Brazil. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Jake Groove. It was such a pleasure to have Castillo as my guest. You can find him on LinkedIn, Castillo Bobson. To learn more about Zenvia, go to zenvia.com. And to hear more from us, follow me on Instagram at Olgomaslikov with Cage. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at the J Curve Podcast and rate us on Spotify. Thank you for being with me today.